Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Welcome back, everybody, to another amazing episode of For the Love of Money. I am really excited about today's episode because it's probably the flirtiest and the cheekiest episode that we have done yet as we are sitting down with Polly Rodriguez, the founder of UnboundBox.com, which is probably the fastest growing women's sexual health products company online today. Now, before we get to that conversation, don't forget that tickets to The Bliss Project, the world-famous weekend for women, where if you are lacking fulfillment, if you are lacking purpose, if you know that something's missing but you haven't quite identified what it is, if you know that you deserve to be a little bit happier than you are right now, day to day, this is the place to find it. It is put on by my amazing wife, Lori Harder, and every year we have women from eight different countries fly in and attend it so that their lives can be changed in one weekend. If you're curious, go check it out at theblissproject.info. Again, theblissproject.info. Literally a life-changing weekend. All right, so today's episode, when I sit down and talk to Polly, will blow your mind. Not only is her story amazing and touching all at once. How she went from being diagnosed with cancer at age 19 to now the CEO of one of the greatest women's sexual health companies online. But we also get into talking about what's it like working in an industry that some people are so judgmental about. And we talk about what challenges women entrepreneurs currently face and how we can all help solve them together. And then we get into why she elects to give 6.9% of all profits. And yes, that number is no accident. 6.9% of all profits to women's sexual health causes that need funding and need the spotlight. Proving once again that we can make a huge impact once we are successful on all of the issues that we face today. So make sure that you sit down, listen up, because this episode is on fire. All right, Polly, thank you so much for being on. I am crazy excited to talk to you about your story and, quite honestly, the subject matter today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. So before you became this successful businesswoman that you are now, I'd imagine there's an incredible backstory that made you who you are. Would you mind briefly kind of taking the audience on that journey that shaped you growing up? Yeah. I mean, I came from a very lower to middle class uh, income family in St. Louis, Missouri, Midwest. And I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood um, and then got a full scholarship to college where I went out of state. And while I was in college, was diagnosed with cancer, um, was actually living abroad in Spain. And part of my cancer treatment uh, was actually going through radiation and subsequently chemotherapy and surgery. But it was the radiation treatment that catapulted me into menopause at the age of 21. And 
none of my doctors really talked to me about what that meant. I actually was just on the internet Googling and that was kind of how I found out. And, um, that, I mean, cancer itself shaped a lot of my perspective on the world. I lost healthcare as a result of getting cancer. And I think going through that and, um, seeing how much my family definitely like loved me and, and what real love actually means definitely shaped my perspective. But, going through menopause at 21 and not having anyone to talk to, I did what any young woman would do, which is end up on the internet looking for answers and didn't really come across anything reliable. And, you know, fast forward 10 years later after a career on wall street and Capitol Hill working for Senator Arthur McCaskill and for a white combinator backed dating startup, I still was really surprised that no company really existed uh, to help women in that way. And so that was kind of the catalyst behind Unbound, but also more importantly, kind of the, the life moments that shaped me to want to work on what I work on today. That's incredible. So first of all, we're both uh, former Midwest kids. I don't know if you're ever former, but I grew up in the Midwest as well, Wisconsin. And I love some of the work ethic and you know great moral values that it gives you. But then there's other parts where I feel like if you can take your Midwest upbringing and bring it to one of the coasts, it's like the perfect balance. What do you think? Oh my gosh, I cannot agree with you more. It's like one of our values when we first started out was like Midwestern uh, work ethic, coupled with that kind of optimism, positivity, and friendliness, and and dedication to staying humble and and being willing to, you know, grab coffee with anybody, help anybody out, be the first person in the office, like be the person that's always willing to ask if somebody needs help on something. And I think I'm always so excited when I meet a fellow Midwesterner in New York. So I'm like, oh, like, like you, it just, it just kind of all of a sudden this barrier gets broken down. Where you're like, oh, we can be like really nice to each other. It's totally okay. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I do the same thing out here in LA. So I want to go back to the part of your story. Obviously, this may be the largest part of what shaped you, uh, among many, many other things. But getting cancer in college while abroad in Spain—that is. I can't imagine how scary that was in itself, but then for you to be thrust into menopause at age 21, and, and you're right, there's probably not a lot of people that you're going to be able to talk to that would have that same experience. What thoughts were going through your mind? Yeah, I think with cancer, it's hard. I had a really pretty bad prognosis. I had like a 30% survival rate and it had spread uh, to my lymph nodes. And so for my doctors, it was very much like, let's triage what's going on. Like, let's focus on just survival. And so in some ways I like feel not guilty, but like a little selfish about like complaining about menopause or any of these things. Because when I look back at, you know, 21 year old Polly, she was just really grateful to like make it six months, make it a year, make it a year and a half. And like with each six month marker, I was just more and more grateful that, you know, I beat the odds. I think it wasn't until I was, you know, in my mid 20s that I really started to think about like, you know, once you hit that five year marker and you're cancer free, that's, that's when you're kind of like in the clear. And so that was when I picked my head up and kind of was like, okay, like, what does this mean like long term for me? And, and you go from this kind of survival mode to, okay, now I'm going to have like a really long life. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And I think the 21 year old me was just so focused on not dying <laughs> that I think my sexuality was an afterthought. And I think it was an afterthought for my doctors too. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I think when you're looking at, you know, a really bad prognosis like I was, it was just kind of the reality of the situation. 
So obviously you had some other jobs in between then and when you mm-hmm. started up uh, Unbound Box, but you just talked about probably the biggest catalyst to you starting Unbound, and, and that is um, your sexuality kind of being put to the side, as you as you phrase mm-hmm. it, while you're going through your struggles. And so why don't you kind of share with us, how'd you come up with the idea? Actually, quite honestly, share with everybody, what is Unbound? Yeah. Unbound is a sexual wellness company for women. And one of the things we actually struggle with is, is how do we define ourselves? Because when you think about the adult industry, historically, it doesn't, you know, you don't have very, probably very positive associations with that. And I think for me, it was creating a company where women could one, read content that would answer all the Google searches we're all putting in, but then two, buy products that, you know, really made them feel good about their sexuality, made them feel informed and knowledgeable. But then also like it didn't make the shopping experience feel so trashy and taboo. Um, for me personally, like I ended up on the side of the highway at Hustler Hollywood growing up when I was going through cancer. Cause I had a good friend that was a nurse who was like, Oh, you know, you're going through a pretty significant life change. Like maybe you should buy like a vibrator and lubricant. And I just turned bright red and I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't buy those things. What? No. Like I would, I would never, I would never do that. And she was like, well, just maybe consider it. And so I tried to find the nearest store and it was on the side of the highway. And I just remember walking in and being like, Oh oh my God, like this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I felt like really gross and embarrassed about it. And so I kind of like shelved that memory away and like put it in like a dark corner and I thought about it again. And then you know, I'd always, it always surprised me that there kind of wasn't a mainstream, like, br- like brand that, that, that resembled a health or beauty brand that was selling these products to women in a way that made them feel, feel good. And so um, that's what we aspire to be. Um, you know, our customers tell us that that's what we are, which is really great. And we really just want, like, I believe that every woman should, should feel entitled to buying products in the sexual wellness category. Um, certainly they don't have to, but I think a lot of times women feel like there's this stigma associated with it. And so that's what we work on trying to break down. It's funny. I I literally had the visual of you like pulling into that seedy parking lot on the side of the highway, you know, and it's it's like hardly lit. And like my mom's, my my mom's like CRV, like rolling up like like an (laughs) undercover outfit. Like I was just so, I don't know. Like you don't, people don't talk about it. You know, like I, here I am like doing an incognito search on Google. Like, Cause you don't, I don't know, like sex ed is is not about pleasure. It's not about what you enjoy. It's really about like, don't get an STD, don't get pregnant. And so I think for a lot of us growing up, especially in the Midwest or in, in, you know, more conservative states, sometimes like there tends to be this sex ed that's just very, you know, abstinence only and don't get pregnant. And like it, for a lot of people, that's just not practical and you and you need more information and so I think most of us turn to the internet and what we find is like such a wide array and wide spectrum of like websites you could land on some of them more fact-driven than others I think I love what you're doing number one and and number two I love the way that you said there should be a more beautiful shopping experience available for women you know as opposed to going into some of these places and so you said you kind of modeled it after like a a beautiful online beauty shopping experience or something like that where did you get the actual idea did you just say this is missing I'm gonna make it or how did it truly come about so there's this amazing woman that I met in this 
kind of female. I was at a startup previously and it was a dating startup and like it dating startups are a whole nother animal that I could get into that I won't, but like you, they all kind of like rise and then fall and they're very much like based on trends and ours did really well. We got to like 5 million in revenue and then all of a sudden like Tinder became destigmatized and I had, I'd been a part of this like female entrepreneurship group in New York City and, and I, you know, had, had come to meet this woman named Sarah Jane and she was telling me how like, they wanted to do this subscription box and it was like it was when Birchbox had first started out and they were like you know think about how great it would be if you could get you know a vibrator or a lubricant sent to your door once every like three months and you wouldn't have to because a lot of people I think have paradox of choice in this category specifically and so we met and, and got to know each other and started working on it and I was like yeah but this could be so much more than that and then we opened up an online store and like increased the amount of inventory we were holding from like to like I think 900 different SKUs and then um started to vertically integrate and make our own products and so um yeah I think both of us had had individual experiences that had led us to thinking that the category was just really overlooked um and then we went to trade shows and and we realized like why the industry kind of had the reputation it did and and that there weren't a lot of women that were in the industry and there wasn't a lot of capital and it was, and there's a whole nother story as to why it's really difficult to raise capital in this industry specifically, but a little bit of the backstory as to how we got started. So what's funny is I'm Sarah Jane are so, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. Finish. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and Sarah Jane are still working on it today. Oh my God. I love it. What a cool partnership. You know, I was going to say, we're going to steer it towards talking about capital and and some of the difficulties in raising that in a little bit. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So when your company just got started there, I mean, I heard that you grew 700% last year. Is that true? Mm -hmm. That's insane. Oh my God. It's crazy. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Okay. There had to be some wild challenges though, along the way. What was one of the biggest challenges and how'd you navigate through it? Oh my gosh. Um, so one of the more tactical ones is I historically had worked in like strategy consulting and a lot of like strategy work and not with inventory and working capital. And one of the, like it's a double-edged sword. Cause like you, you get all this wonderful growth, which is great, but all of a sudden you're having to buy inventory at like increased rates at twice the speed and twice the amount and more and more and more. And, you know, because of our industry, we had a really hard time getting any loans for working capital or inventory. And so for a while it was really tough because like we were selling out of products and the way it worked was just with cash flows. I learned the hard way that, you know, you, you kind of like buy products up front when you're a new startup, like, you know, the, the suppliers want you to pay up front, but then, a lot of the times with a lot of like the vendors you're working with, you have like net 30, net 16, net 90 terms. And so you're not getting paid until like one, two, three months lag. Um, and that's from when you sold it, not necessarily from when you bought it. And so I learned the hard way um, about cash flows and that you have to be really smart about as you're growing that fast, kind of how you're financing that stuff. If you haven't raised capital, which we hadn't yet, um, we did close our seed round, but at the time, it was, I mean, it, it was such a bizarre experience to see the sales and see all the numbers go up and, and simultaneously feel so broke and have no money in the bank because you're constantly paying for inventory. Um, 
so we were able to raise like a small friends and family round on a convertible note, which saved us because that it just all went into inventory and being able to hold enough to where it, we were safe. We weren't like selling out of stuff. We weren't having to like, because that has kind of a ripple effect where you sell out of something and then you have customer service, you know, issues and you have to, you know, spend more hours making it up to the customers and you're offering discount codes because their order is going to be late. And so it's just kind of this domino effect that you want to get ahead of um, if you can. So that was one of the problems that, that we uh, ran into and, and figured out the hard way. It's also just so many of the stigmas associated with being in the industry that we're in. And, and I think people making assumptions and trying to break down barriers and, you know, whether it's getting a bank account or, a payment process or we still aren't allowed to advertise on Facebook or Instagram. Um, we couldn't get insurance. We couldn't, you know, get any HR software to let us use their platform. Um, so we ran into so many of those obstacles that I had, hadn't even anticipated when I first started because I, just, I don't know, I just, I, I'd never imagined that people would turn us down based on like ethics. Because um, I didn't think what we were doing was unethical. Um, so that was a, a real surprise to me. But we, we figured workarounds. And I think the thing I realized is that if you can get someone on the phone and you can kind of talk to them about the mission and the vision and the company and the strategy and what you're trying to do, you can slowly win people over. It's just it's an uphill battle and it's super time consuming and kind of emotionally draining. <laughs> you know, right there, those one of the best tips I've ever heard is if you can just get somebody on the phone you've got such a better mm-hmm. chance of solving that hurdle. Yeah, because you're a person. And I think it's so easy for people to write you off via email or to just not respond. And, I mean, there have been so many times where I've just shown up places with, you know, a smile on my face and, like, a basket of cookies and been like, I know I probably look like a crazy person, but will you just give me, like, 15 minutes of your time? And you feel like there's this, I don't know, as an entrepreneur, there's just like, there's this point in time where you have like pride and you're like, and then, and then you realize like, Oh man, like who cares? I I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to show up. And like the worst that'll happen is like, they'll say no, or they won't talk to me or they'll ask me to leave. But like, you know, I'd, I'd rather go and try and know that I like did everything I could rather than just say, like most things in life really it's funny you bring up pride because i've got this saying that says um ego is your greatest overhead and i literally had to come up with that in order to get me to move forward sometimes because i would let my pride or my ego get in the way and you realize it is such a huge barrier but it really isn't a barrier once you get over it yeah yeah and and then it's really not about you and like I don't know. Like we always talk about kind of like service leadership and that's more relative to a team. But yeah, like it's, it's, I mean, the stuff that I went through when we first started the company to just make ends meet. um, Like I remember I was selling raffle tickets at a gala event. I had like three part-time jobs and I was selling raffle tickets at this gala event I had to wear a cummerbund and a headset. And I remember, like, my ex-boyfriend, my ex-boyfriend walks in. And I'm, like, standing there. I'm, like, oh, my God. If he sees me, I'll die. I'll just die. And I, like, back up into this rack of strollers. And I flip over. And the whole room looks over at me, including him. And he sees me. And, like, this woman comes running up to me. And she's, like, oh, my God. She's, like, that was such a bad fall. 
are you okay? And it was like literally the most mortifying moment of my life. And I, I was just like, you know what? If I, if I can get through that, I can get through anything. And then you just realize like, it doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks because I'm working on something that means so much more to me than looking dumb at a gala or, you know, taking a job that's quote, you know, beneath me. Um, Cause it's not, and everything's a good experience. I think if you go into it with the right attitude, it's hard at the time. Like I certainly had like dark moments, but I think if you're just willing to do whatever it takes, like you'll get there. Yeah. It's that persistence that obviously pays off in the long run. Now in your world, you know, sexual women's sexuality and sexuality in general, it's become a, a really comfortable topic. And it's funny that you're from the Midwest. Cause I know how, like how much more taboo it is back there compared to the coasts. Right. And mm-hmm. for many of our listeners mm-hmm. out there, though, it's not as comfortable uh, of a topic. And so was there any hesitation or resistance in starting a company in the sexual wellness field? And like, what did you think your family was going to think back in the Midwest? And were you afraid of judgment? Because I got I to gotta kind of preface this. And that is, I feel like the fear of judgment is what holds back most everybody from following through on their great business ideas. Yeah. I mean, I, we started, I remember we started working on it and it was like, it had been like a month and every like couple of days I was like, okay, today's the day I'm going to tell my parents, like today's the day I'm going to like tell them what I'm working on. And I was terrified. I was like, I mean, for one, I think it's, you know, your parents are really protective and your family's protective and there's this fear of like, oh my gosh, is she going to end up like starving just because you're, you're like, I'm, I want to start a business and I want to be an entrepreneur. And I think, you know, coming from a Midwestern work ethic where it's like you keep your head down and you work hard and, you know, you, you get your paycheck and keep working. And I think my parents were a little like, there was, you know, the notion of just like, oh my God, you want to be an entrepreneur, which they're terrified about, which is like, do you have any idea what you're doing? And the answer is like, no, I don't. I mean, you do, but like most of what you're doing is stuff you've never done before. And so there's this weird thing where you have to kind of, as an entrepreneur, I feel like, face a little bit and and just be like yeah like everything's gonna be great and that's weird because like you know your family's kind of your support system and so for me for a while I kind of had to just be brutally confident that it was going to work out meanwhile like you know you're terrified that it may not and when you couple that with oh and by the way it's a sexual health and wellness company my parents were just like have you lost your mind like my mom I remember my mom was just really upset that because she was just nervous that I was going to like ruin my career and that like if Unbound were to fail that I you know wouldn't be able to get a job that people would see what I had the type of company that I had started and they would think that uh that like my reputation was too tarnished or something and they're now both in I mean they've always been incredibly supportive and and have championed me since day one but it, it was really awkward at first and it was hard. But I think the thing I've realized about human sexuality in general is that like, if you can be really vulnerable and honest about like what it is, what, like what it is about human sexuality that interests you and like why you're doing it. And you can just like kind of like simmer in that awkward moment. It really only good things come from that. And my family's actually grown, I think a lot closer as a result of unbound because you laugh about it and, and, and then you kind of move on to the next moment. And I think it's, 
I don't know. I think that, that in some ways, I mean, like, do I like to think about, you know, like my parents having sex? Like, no, not necessarily, but can <laughs> I deny the fact that like, I wouldn't be here if they hadn't? No, I can't. So I don't know. I think, I think that it, they were definitely worried for me, but as an entrepreneur, I think like you just know in your gut, like there's just fire in your belly where you're like, I, I will do whatever it takes to make this succeed. And you kind of have to make that decision in your head with yourself. And then, and then nothing else really matters because you're committed to it. Oh my God. I love it. So in other words, that mission that means so much to you is should far outweigh that fear of judgment. Yeah. Because like people are going to, I don't know. I, I, to me, it was never fear of judgment really because if you're doing it for the right reasons, you don't care about being judged. Like I know people judge me and I know people think certain things about me, but like, I know my truth. Like I know why I care about this. And like, if you're, if you're good with that with yourself, like the judgment, yeah, I don't, the judgment doesn't really ever get to me. It's great advice. That's actually going to free a lot of people up, I think. Now talk to me about women Mm -hmm. in business because two thirds of my listeners are actually women. So you're like a dream interview for who they want to hear from. And I'm seeing and interviewing more success stories from women lately, it feels like, than from men. But I know that there's still a lot of talk about equality barriers in business. And you actually made me think of an entirely different one. And that is, um, you know, I don't even know how to phrase it, equality in in what your field is of expertise or whatever. So what does the landscape look like right now for women entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's rough. I, I mean... So 17% of all startups have female founder and 5% of venture capital goes to women. Um, Those are the latest stats. They probably range within a two to 3% margin of error, but generally speaking, women are underrepresented as founders and underfunded. And I, it took me two years to raise our seed round and over 200 uh, rejection letters and emails, 200. And those are just the people who took the time to write me back. I mean, it's, it's really hard. And at least I still get rejection letters from stuff all the time. And I think it's, it's really hard not to let that noise get to you. And I think especially as a woman, when you're usually walking into a room of investors who are men, it can be really overwhelming, especially when, you know, I had to get up there and right off the bat, you know, put my heart on the table and be like, hi, I'm this young female and I'm not typical to all the other people that pitch you usually. And also I'm going to tell you about this time I had cancer. And also I'm going to tell you about like why that matters to women and sex. And like, I remember the first time I laughed, I, or the first time I pitched, I got laughed out of the room. Um, literally I like turned around I hadn't even shut the door and the room just like erupted in, in laughter. And it was, this, it, there was like, I think one woman in the room and there were like 25, maybe 30 men and I went in the bathroom and just like cried. And I was just like, this is never going to work. Like, this is never going to work. No one's ever going to take me seriously. And, but then I like called my mom and told her what had happened. And it was really funny. Cause like, she was the person all along who was kind of like, I don't know if you should be doing this. And then when she like heard me, you know, down on my luck, she was just like, no, you, you get back out there and, and you wipe those tears off your face and, and, and you be proud of what you're doing because it's important and it matters. And so I think 
So I think it's, I think it's hard to be a woman. And I think especially for like the industry that we're in, it makes people uncomfortable. And so they tend to like laugh or giggle or not to take it seriously. And that can be tough. There's also a lot of sexual harassment that happens. And I certainly, you know, had my experiences with that. And, and I think you just have to know what like your North star is and like stick to it and not let other people deter you, whether it's, harassment or rejection or any of that um but i i think women have to deal with a substantially larger amount of of those obstacles than men do and it's it's not anyone's fault per se but it, it certainly makes the road to female entrepreneurship i think a little bit of a harder one i can't imagine getting laughed i mean literally laughed out of the room and then finding the fortitude to keep going you're, you're such an inspiration in that story what what has to happen for there to be more venture capital money, more opportunities, for it to be easier for women to have a, a successful startup out there? What has to change? Uh, I mean, like we all are biased and not maliciously. We're just involuntarily biased. And so when you're pitching investors, one of the first things that they think is like, what do I see a personal need for this? What, how do I relate to it? What's the applicability that I see through my lens of the world? And I think when you see, you know, the vast majority of venture capital firms run by male partners, like it's, it's just hard to pitch, you know, like female entrepreneurs ideas, if, if your idea is specific to women. And there are so many female entrepreneurs who are building businesses that have nothing to do with um, the female consumer. Um, so I think one, it's like changing the number of women in, that, that are on like the VC investment side. And then I think it's just, I make such an effort to bring other women up with me. And like, whenever my investors are asking for like, cause it's such an insular network. And so my investors will ask like, you know, who, who are good people we should be meeting with and who are you impressed by? And what founders have you talked to? Like, I really try to prioritize some of the, the women that are in my network over the men, like, sorry, and, and you know, like, sorry, dudes, but like, I just think there, that it's such a like vicious cycle of you have to break in in order to be a part of the network. And it takes so many more women just kind of like breaking in before we'll see change, which there's no like magic answer to it, but I think it's just, it's going to take women being relentless and, which investing in women like those opportunities are there i think it's still just a lot of the like social and societal uh barriers that women have to overcome so what role do we own as men how can we participate in improving this gap uh, i mean it depends on like what kind of what what your role is in your day-to-day -day. like i think if if you're a guy and, and your friend who's a woman has a good idea, like encourage her to do it. I think I don't, I don't want to make sweeping generalizations, but I think, um, I just think women tend to sell themselves short a lot. Um, I was just on a, actually a conference call earlier today and one of these women introduced herself and was just like, Oh yeah. You know, like I, I, I write and I have a, you know, like I I'm in media. She is like, like I think 25,000 like dedicated subscribers, followers to like all the things that she writes. Um, 
and she's a journalist and she's fantastic. And, and I just interrupted her and I was like, that's not an honest intro. I'm going to intro you as like, and, and I was just like, and I don't mean to interrupt, but like need a little bit of that encouragement. And I think, especially when they can get that from the men in, in their lives, it, it's helpful. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's encouraging a friend to pursue an entrepreneurial idea that you hear, or if it's just being willing to like help someone with something, whether it's a pitch deck or a financial model or any of that, and, and also just facilitating introductions. All right. So Polly, let's actually talk generosity because I saw that you give 6.9% of all your profits to women's sexual health causes. And by the way, I'm sure that 6.9 is not an accident, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we picked that uh, specific decimal and numerical value on purpose. <laughs> I love it. You can tell that you put a lot of thought in your brand. I love this. Okay, so um, obviously you're giving a lot of money to women's sexual health causes. Why does this mean a lot to you and, and which ones are you giving to? Yeah, I think we always wanted to have a, a component of our business that gave back to the causes that that we believe in, especially ones that have been under attack recently, like Planned Parenthood. Um, I think there are also just a lot of really honorable causes that it, it it feels well, it feels good to give back, obviously, but then it also is really good for team morale. And I think we make it a point to allow anyone at the company to nominate an organization that either they just really believe in or that they've worked with or they volunteered for. And um, we will work with any organization that is in the general vicinity of female health and wellness. And so for us, it's a really cool thing because we see, you know, some of the most junior people at the team will come in and say, you know, I worked with this organization. Like one we did um, just this year was the Trevor Project. And it was one of our interns who came in and was like, I've been doing some great work with the Trevor project. And I would love if we could, you know, donate some things, some of our, some of our revenue to them. So we're trying to get a little bit more like systematic about it so that it's not as like, it's, it's a big effort. It takes a lot to consistently like work with different organizations. And so as we grow in scale, I think we're hoping that we can kind of narrow our focus, but historically as a startup, it's just been really great to be able to champion the different causes that employees believe in. What, originally gave you the idea to donate 6.9% of your profits to causes like this. Did you say, I want to be a socially conscious um, company or did you say, I want to create change? Like what was the driver to give? That's a good chunk, by the way, of your profits. Yeah. Back. yeah. Um, well, my mom is actually a social worker and has always worked for the Alzheimer's association. And I think when I first started this business, it, it just, it wasn't even ever like a question. It was just like, if, if we have enough margin and we have the capabilities to champion the organizations we believe in, like, why wouldn't we? Um, and so it was never even a discussion or debate. We just always knew that we wanted a portion to go towards an organization. I, I remember when we first were trying to figure out what that number was going to be. I talked to my mom because she's, you know, been, she, she was the chief operating officer of the Alzheimer's association in St. Louis where I grew up. And so she had a good sense of like what that number could look like. And she was like, you know, traditionally companies will donate anywhere between like two, four, sometimes 4.5% of their profits, but anywhere North of that. And it's, you're getting a little risky. And I was like, well, what about 6.9? And she was like, probably do not donate that much money. That's insane. And we were just like, but but if we can do it, let's do it. And so I think we'll have to continually revisit the number over time. But out of the gate, it was, I don't know, it was, it was just important to us. And we thought it would be a good selling point 
um, with our customers too. I have to give you serious credit as a CEO because you said something before and it's the first time in all these interviews I've actually heard it. And that is your DNA of giving as a company boosts employee morale. And you, you kind of barely touched on it. You said, you know, if a cause means something to somebody in, in, on your team, then they can bring it forward and, and maybe you guys will donate. But do it, does it really boost team morale? Like how does that work? Yeah. I mean, the team just gets really excited about it. I think um, the most recent example, we wrote a check of just under $13,000 to Planned Parenthood about two weeks ago. And we like bought one of those like giant checks and like had it in the office and like wrote it out together. And like the whole team gathered around and we like went outside and took a photo in front of the check. And then we hang that up on our wall. And I think it's really good to have in a world in which like we're constantly inundated with like technology and, and we, most of the work that all of us do is through these intangible channels. It's really good to have physical reminders of, of why you come to work every day. And so for the people at our office, it makes them feel good to know that part of what they're doing is going towards helping women get mammograms and helping teenagers have access to uh, birth control and STD screening. And so for the people that, you know, choose to work at a sexual health and wellness company, they also tend to care about those things. And so to know that the company collectively cares about them, um, it just, it gets people excited and it makes them excited to come to work because it's not just about selling. It's about something more meaningful. And I think all of us are looking for purpose. And I think if you can give that to your employees in a very small way, um, it means a lot to them. Yeah, I totally agree. I love it, Polly. You know, the whole tagline of this podcast is when good people make good money, they do great things. Do you think that you could be giving at this level and making this level of impact if you were not first successful? I mean, not at this impact. I think um, when I first got diagnosed with cancer, I went to go work on Capitol Hill because I, you know, thought if I want to change the world, I should go try to work in the place where they write the laws. And one of the things that was really disheartening to me was kind of how slow change worked and moved. And at the time, I remember Michael Bloomberg was mayor of New York and he had had all of this success privately running his company and then had made such a big impact on the communities and the things that he believed in as a result of his private success. And so I remember really thinking hard about like, do I want to stay in the slog of working in government to enact change or do I want to try to start a business and change the world that way? And in the end, you know, it's unfortunate because I wish our systems were our public systems worked better, but I, I do believe that like you can build a business and be really successful and take that and make a huge impact on the world. And, and I do think that that's the more efficient mechanism to do so. Yeah, I absolutely agree, especially when generous people like yourselves are the ones at the helm of these thriving businesses, then you know that they're going to do the right things with the excess funds, with the success, with the abundance that they're experiencing. Did you ever think you were really going to reach the level that you're reaching right now in terms of success? Like, did you have a gut feeling that you'd be this successful or is this a surprise to you? Um, I had a gut feeling that I wanted to, to throw my life into something more than what I was getting on Facebook every day and seeing that my friends were doing. And I think there's this brutal in-between point where like you have this vision of like what you want to build and create. And then like you start out and you're like, this is not glamorous and this isn't fun and this is really hard. And, 
And so I think I always knew, because when I went through cancer, you know, the doctors were like, oh, you'll never have children. And so I think for me, kind of knowing that like my path was going to be different because I had gone through cancer and that like getting married and like biologically having children and like doing that wasn't in the cards for me. I think I, I kind of decided at an early age that I wanted to take that I wanted to see that as an opportunity. Um, I'm certainly surprised by how quickly we've grown. Um, but I think I always knew in my heart that like getting cancer was kind of this weird gift where it gave me permission to like pursue a different path. Um, because the traditional path wasn't going to be available to me. And, and I think that like, it's all a matter of mindset and you can look at that as something like beautiful and like as a gift, or you can look at it as like this burden that you're like different from everyone else. And I think most of life is just a matter of perspective. Yeah. Oh my God. That's one of the best points that you have made up to this point <laughs> is that everything in life is a matter of perspective. Like that yeah. alone will free so many people up. So here's something kind of fun that we do with every single guest. And that is we aim to inspire other people to give even more than they already do. And we mm -hmm. do it through a fun little segment called two minutes of bragging. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, but I'm going to put you there anyways. So what is all of, what is one of your all time favorite moments of giving or philanthropy that you've been a part of? Oh my gosh. I mean, most recently giving to Planned Parenthood was one of my most favorite moments because when I was 18, that was where I got my birth control. And so to be able to give back to them was, was really amazing. Um, so that's, that's, Probably, I mean, it's also the most recent, so it's what's top of mind, but um, the Vibes for Congress campaign, too, uh, where we got to send, we did a campaign where you could send a vibrator to any congressional member, along with an educational packet on women's sexual health and wellness, and I thought we'd sell maybe, like, I don't know, 100 vibrators, and we ended up selling, like, almost 2,000, and so, and, and the... 75% of all the, um, all of the profits and all the proceeds went to, uh, Planned Parenthood and other organizations that benefited female sexual health and wellness. So that was, um, probably my favorite moment thus far. Oh my God. That's amazing. I love that your, your business lends you to so much creativity with the things that yeah. you get to do it. It's like this intrinsic reward that your only your business can provide where you get to do these really cool, creative, you know, kind of cheeky things. I love it. Yeah. Like they're a little edgy. They're just edgy enough. <laughs> yep, exactly. I love it. I love it. Okay. So what's next for you and where can everybody find you and your products? So next for us is we're actually releasing, um, a whole line of products in, uh, mid November, the second week of November and time for the holidays. And everyone can find them at unboundbox.com. Um, and yeah, like we're just excited. Like we're getting ready to go into our busy season, which is starts like Black Friday, Cyber Monday through Valentine's Day. So we're just gearing up for all of that. And then we always have really amazing content on the site. We're getting ready to do uh, September is sexual education month for us. So highlighting kind of the state of sex ed in the United States and doing some really good pieces on what, what that looks like uh, all across the United States. So um, definitely check us out on the web because we have great content and amazing products. Unboundbox.com. And we're going to make sure that we put that in the show notes. So everyone who's listening, you just go to forlovemoney.com and, and click right on the link in the show notes there. All right. So last signature question is this, and I love all the different answers I get. Why should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of success and or wealth? I think they should be unapologetic apologetic because I think we inspire one another and I think especially for women um 
there's so much data to support this that like when there is an example of someone achieving their dreams and going after what they want and especially in an unapologetic way it gives other women permission to do the same and so I think while it feels at times inherently selfish I actually think it's for the collective good and it allows other people to dream big too who perhaps think that they um weren't the right person or 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 couldn't be that person and so I think something that can feel selfish is, is actually a very um charitable act in a lot of ways um so I guess that would be my answer to that <laughs> I love it Polly great answer all of your answers were amazing yeah. thank you so much for you spending so much for this time me. with us it was it's a great yeah. time and I know that you've just delivered so much value to everybody oh thank you thank you for having me you bet Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.